Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Modern Learners Podcast. If you're listening today, it's because you understand we have a real need for change in our schools and that we owe it to our learners to think differently about what school is and what it could be. If you're someone who is in a position of educational leadership where you aspire to be and you want to surround yourself with others doing the difficult but vital work of igniting school change, we invite you to join us in Modern Learners' newest community, Change Leaders. I'm Lynn Hilt, the Community Manager of CLC, and our space can help ensure you're using your professional learning time to the fullest. CLC offers carefully curated content to help you find signal among the noise, thought-provoking questions and discussions with inspiring community members who are serious about change, live events and access to the Modern Learners team, and a circle of critical friends who will help you kick off change efforts in your schools. Visit changeleaders.community and click subscribe to request your invitation to CLC. After doing so, we'll be in touch about how you can join in our movement, and we are so confident that you will find incredible value in making CLC your preferred learning destination that we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee. We look forward to continued learning with you. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host. And in this, our 37th episode, we talk with Dr. David Gleason, the author of At What Cost? Defending Adolescent Development in Fiercely Competitive Schools. And I'm going to tell you up front that this conversation and that book will make you uncomfortable in a much needed way. I actually met David last month during a trip to Johannesburg, South Africa, and his presentation provided perhaps my most profound moment of 2018 as he talked about the bind that we are in as educators, parents, and as a society when it comes to keeping our most heartfelt commitments to our kids. So just be ready to be challenged. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, to A, tell your friends, B, head on over to iTunes and give us a review, and C, tell your friends again so they listen in. And don't forget, if you want to dive more deeply into how schools can be and are being reimagined for this amazing and challenging moment, you can find more at modernlearners.com, at change.school, and at changeleaders.community. But for now, really hope you enjoy this talk with David Gleason and that his work gives you as much to think about as it has me. As always, thanks so much for listening. So David, it's great to get some time to spend with you talking a little bit about your work and your book. I think I mentioned to you that when we met in South Africa a couple of weeks ago, I was just really struck by the presentation that you gave in mm. that it really kind of solidified some of the thinking that I've been doing as well. But you, you put it in a way that was so interesting to me that I just thought it'd be great if we could have this conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time, first of all. Yeah, it's a pleasure to do that. Thanks. I thought we'd start by just giving us a little bit of background on your work. I know that you've been working in schools for quite some time, mostly uh, independent and international schools, but can you give us a little bit of a setup of where this book that you wrote, at what cost, how that kind of came out of some of the work that you've been doing in schools and the conversations that you've had there? Yeah. So, you know, when I thought about this, I, um, I got my start in independent schools when I was in graduate school. I was living at a boarding school at the time while my wife was teaching and I was struck by just the boarding school life of these young secondary school students. I ended up writing my dissertation at that time, back about 30 years ago. It was called Learned Helplessness and the Adjustment to Boarding School. And I was just struck by the, the reality that the transition to boarding school was very difficult for these young children. These are 13 and 14-year-old kids. 
and they're coming away to live away at home. And I was struck by that. And anyway, without going into too much detail, I noticed I did a longitudinal study with about 105 kids at that time that just gave me a sense of how they as a group, as a population, they became significantly more kind of helpless or in the direction of depression over the course of their first semester of school. There were all kinds of reasons why that may have been true, but it it attracted me to the whole field of working with, you know, independent schools. I then got a job right after that, working at one of New England's most prestigious boarding schools. And I did that for about four or five years. And then I kept working in independent schools after that, subsequently moved back up to Boston and have been the consulting psychologist for Concord Academy for the last 15 years as well, in addition to doing private practice. But about five years ago, and I mentioned this in when we were, you know, met in South Africa, I was struck by the frequency with which more and more kids were presenting with suicidal ideation, having, having myself experienced earlier trends of eating disorders and cutting and self-injury. But it just seemed like there was a preponderance of kids presenting with what felt to me like the symptom du jour of suicidal ideation. And then I started presenting at international schools conferences, and one thing led to another, and I've presented in international schools and conferences and U.S. schools as well about these very themes for about five years. So even though your work is primarily in international schools, boarding schools, I mean, these are these are themes that are cropping up in public schools. Of course. Across the whole landscape, right? I think I read something the other day that said that somewhere around 30% of college students are presenting with depression or stress and anxiety. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, you know, not to say that all of that is because of school or because of the expectations of school, but certainly in your work, I, I think that's something that you're finding, right? That a lot of Absolutely. the expectations, a lot of yeah, the this is not, this is not an issue that's, that's unique only to independent and international schools that the way I've termed it in the book is really about any competitive, you know, secondary school in the country or in the world. The, the issue that the way I kind of draw the distinction is all public schools in the U.S. have a primary mission to educate all students, right. from the most learning disabled students to the most superstar academic students. So as public schools, their mission isn't almost exclusively to get kids into college. But what's predominantly, I think, the mission of many independent and international schools is to get kids into college. And that's that's where this mission becomes that much more uh, salient and that much more precise. So in just to, since most of my work has been with public schools and, you know, some some independent and some international schools, I can say that without too much trouble that getting into college is still a big goal for yeah, most of most public schools and, and is one way that they measure their success. Yeah. Uh, not only that, but certainly test scores, you know, SAT, ACT scores, grades, class rank, all of that stuff certainly plays into that whole conversation. What do you think has created this narrative? I mean, why do you think we are at the place where we're at now where there's so much emphasis put on doing well academically and succeeding in in these kinds of very narrow paths that we've created for kids. I mean, what got us here, do you think? Well, my sense is that a bunch of things have gotten us here. I think that the the world economy is increasingly scary. I think that parents are increasingly concerned and worried about their children's futures. Um, 
I think something as basic as the common application when it came out for colleges <clears throat> meant that it was much easier to apply to a whole lot of colleges with the push of a button on your computer. And that meant that there was a much more global application pool happening to get into some of the most selective colleges. Right now, we're also in a, in a place where many of the parents themselves uh, of the kids who are applying to college are themselves graduates of some of the most selective colleges. So they're wanting their kids to go to those same colleges with the idea that if they do, they will be more financially stable and secure for the rest of their lives. Do you think that the stress for them when they were in the college process was less than it is for the kids today? Definitely, yes. I think it was. I count myself in that same pool. You know, I applied to colleges with, you know, with some confidence that I get in to one of the places I liked. But I never, ever, ever had this much stress on it. I didn't take extra courses on SAT prep courses. Right. I didn't apply to 15 colleges. I, my parents weren't involved at all in my college application process. I filled out all of my, my own college application things. Remember that by hand. Yep, I do. We're old enough to remember that stuff, right? Yeah. And, you know, my parents were kind of on the sidelines cheering me on, but they weren't intimately involved with driving that process in the way that so many parents are now from an incredibly early age now. So I think that there are cultural reasons why we're here. I think there are economic reasons why we're here. I think there are pressures and fears that parents are experiencing that explain why we're here. And all of this kind of adds up to a kind of intense pressure that children and adolescents are experiencing along this continuum. The big question then is, are those fears valid? Are those narratives that we're creating, are they, you know, are they valid? Do they serve kids in the ways that are, you know, down the road will make them more successful or, or are we doing them harm in emphasizing it to the degree we are? <laughs> My thinking is we're doing them harm, but we're not trying to do that. We're unintentionally doing that. I think our own fears as parents and as educators are themselves valid. I think we look at a world and we're anxious about what the world will be looking like for our own children down the road. And what parent doesn't want to do anything he or she can to secure, if they can, their children's well-being for the future. So those fears are valid. And I've experienced them. My wife and I have three children who, you know, we've kind of ushered through this college process and I remember, I mean, our youngest is graduating from college this year. So we're almost through this college process. But I remember well just the fears I had about where will my kids go to college and how will they be? You know, I throw myself into this pool. I'm not, I'm writing about it, but I'm also writing about it from my own experience of having worried about my children's future as well. And I guess that's where it's a little bit different for me, right? Because I think with my kids, just kind of looking back at it. So, you know, obviously my son is, is going to go to college um, yeah. and he's going to play basketball, which is, yeah. is, you know, his real love. I mean, he's yeah. not going because of some academic pursuit. He doesn't know what he wants to do in his life, yeah. but he's had this opportunity, but my daughter didn't go. So she's 20 and she's living in New York city. And, you know, I think I you know, probably said to you, I say to a lot of people, she's getting an amazing education yeah. <laughs> by, yeah. by doing that. But real life, um, 
Yeah, real life learning. And when we talked about college, we always said, you know, you can't close any doors when you're in high school. You don't want to shut out that potential path. But mm-hmm. but there are lots of paths that you can take. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm holding myself up here as the, you know, the poster child or the poster parent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But what is it do you think that that makes it more difficult? Because, it, you know, many times when when Tess's friends were coming over or Tucker's friends were coming over, I'd say, so where are you going to college? And they'll go, well, I'm applying here, here, here. And then I'd say, well, what do you want to study? And most of them say, I really don't have any idea. No, they don't know. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing. And I, I just I guess it's it's this kind of interesting. There's not a lot of wiggle room to get out of that path once right. you're on it. And it seems like most kids are put on that path now from a very, very early age. right? Very early age. Yeah. And if you think about it, the only thing kids really know well when they graduate from high school is school. <clears throat> That's what they know the very best. And it's very difficult to know what you want to do for the rest of your young adult and long-term. I mean, who knows? Nobody knows. Right? Nobody really? knows. And, and yet there's this expectation that they're supposed to know and choose a kind of major, a direction, a focus, as if that's the one that's going to save them. And they feel pressure, I think, very early on to identify even that mm-hmm. uh, long before they have any real life experience to suggest that they may have all kinds of ideas once they get out of school. Even going through college, when kids graduate from college, if they've had internships along the way, well, those are helpful, they know, pieces of information, but all they've ever really, really known is school. So once people get out of school, uh, this is why lots of millennials have have struggled in the 20s. They didn't expect to do so because they came out of college, you know, with high grade point averages and having, you know, done well in college, but that doesn't automatically translate to out automatically doing successful in, in life. To one of the other statistics, too, that I know I've read in many different places is the, the number of people who actually pursue their degree after college. Right? Yeah. It, it ends up where it's well below half of the people actually, yeah. get, up, actually get jobs that right. their degree prepared them for. They find yeah. some other, you know, something else. They go back to school. They do something else, which is really kind of interesting. Um, as I well. remember having a conversation with one of my friends when we were graduated from college. I graduated from college in 1982. And I remember, you know, in a prior to graduation party, but probably like springtime of 1982, talking with my friend who was graduating from college with an English major. And I said, wow, that's really great. And I said, what are you going to do with that? She said, she said, I don't know. She said, but, and this was the best response, and I've quoted her many times, and I know that you're an English teacher, so this will make sense to you. But she said, I just figured if I could graduate from college and I can read, write, and speak well, I've got lots of options open to me. And I thought that was a really healthy perspective that I didn't have. I have it now, but I didn't have it then. And I thought she was ahead of her time. Yeah. No doubt. So I want to get to the the research that you did, and I want to talk about the specifics of your book. But I just I had just one other question along this conversation, and that was: Is it your sense? Because um, you know, we hear more and more about gap years. We hear more and more about kids maybe taking some time to 
figure it out a little bit more yeah. clearly before they go in before they go to school. Is it your sense that that's something that's growing? And as you know, as someone who deals with these types of stresses or sees these types of you know things happening with kids on a regular basis, is that something that you would suggest might be a good path for a lot of kids or no? I think it's a great idea. I think that a lot of kids are afraid to do it because they're afraid to get off the treadmill because they fear that somehow they'll lose their position along this treadmill that has them headed towards their own idea of what success is supposed to be. That somehow they'll be uh, left behind if they get off the track and explore the world or or actually work and do something and gain some real life experience. And they'll never go to college, right? Yeah. And then maybe they won't go to college. My sense is that those who do these kind of gap years have tremendous life experiences that only enhance their wanting to return to school and to do so with better focus of why. So let's talk a little bit about the book and the presentation that you gave. Let's just preface this a little bit with the brain studies and the brain research that you've done and and kind of the the brain science that's come out recently about how well-developed kids' brains are when they're 17 and 18 years old and, and whether or not they're actually even able to do a lot of the things that they're being asked to do in school and, and right. make some of these big decisions. Can you give us an overview of what that looks like now for as, as yeah. far as what we know about the adolescent brain? Um, in the book, I spend a lot of time in my own Chapter 5 going through what I think of as five major neurological advances that we now know beyond the shadow of a doubt are true for all adolescents throughout the world. So without going into specific details about that, because that could take us for another whole couple of hours, the gist of it is that because of the wonders of neuroimaging that we now have in the field of neuroscience, we now know too much not to be doing the right thing to pay attention to adolescent brain development. When you and I were in school, people like Jean Piaget and Eric Erickson and Margaret Mahler and Sigmund Freud and B.F. Skinner and these other theorists were our pillars by which we learned about child development. Those guys, it turns out, I think were all correct, but none of them lived long enough to see what we can now see inside the living human brain, to see what is and is was not yet developed. My favorite study to quote is one by a psychiatrist by the name of Jay Geed, Dr. Jay Geed from the National Institute of Mental Health in Baltimore, did this longitudinal study of, of children from the time they were five years old until the time they were 20. So over 15 years, he and his research crew did brain scans on these typically developing children. They weren't learning disabled in any way, at least not in the, as they entered the study. And then at the end of this 15-year period, he had essentially 208 brain scans from 52 children, and he put them into this composite video, and I showed that video in our presentation. But what it shows really clearly is what parts of the brain are still so tender and young and still developing at age 13, 14, 15 years old, the very time when kids are entering high school. And one of the biggest pressures that I have seen over and over and over, both as a therapist, but also as a practicing neuropsychologist, is that kids are expected to think like adults and to act like adults and to function like adults in terms of their ability to inhibit impulses, to prioritize their tasks, to organize their time and their space and their materials, 
to understand their emotions and express them appropriately. These are really challenging what we now call executive skills. And those are the kinds of things that typically are managed by the prefrontal cortex of the brain. And that part of the brain we now know doesn't fully develop until the late 20s or early 30s. So what I keep coming back to is, isn't it ironic that the very skills that ninth graders need first in order to be successful in competitive school environments are the ones that develop last and not for another 10 or 15 years. So they're already being set up developmentally because they don't have the brain capacity yet to do what most adults are expecting them to do on an everyday basis. And to me, that's not fair. Yeah, and that's that's just a, a profound way of thinking about it, too. The things that we want them to do first are the things that they're really ready to do later, yeah. much later in their lives. But some kids manage it. So yeah. how do they are they just are they just kind of outliers or are they just the they just have the most persistence and drive and whatever else? Or are they well, just, I think, they just I think like in so many other areas of development, so much of development happens along a kind of normal curve that we right. see. Some kids develop much more quickly. Some kids develop much more slowly, but all kids develop. One of the examples that I've used before is one of my own daughter. She's now 25, but of our three children, she was the one who walked the latest. She didn't start walking until she was 19 months old. And around 18 months, maybe 16, 17 months, the pediatrician started getting kind of concerned. You know, is there something wrong with her hip structure? Mm -hmm. Is there something wrong with her? The truth is her temperament was such that she loved being carried and she loved a different way of life. At 19 months, she started walking. And I can tell you to this day, she's still walking and doing so quite well. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's you developed that. That was just a normal developmental yeah. difference. But if we had said to her at one year, like, you need to walk or you're going to get marginalized into this walking disabled group, that wouldn't have been fair. We do that to a lot of kids with reading. We, we do, do it, it all the time. We do it all the time with a whole bunch of other stuff as well. I was interested too, to, uh, I think it was a couple months ago, I read something where they said, and I wish I could quote this more accurately, but they said something along the lines of now, adolescence, the definition of adolescence has been moved back to 25 now, that it extends yeah. into the mid-20s, which is yeah. probably due to a lot of what you're talking about. In fact, and I'm forgetting the name of the, I think it's called the age of innocence or the age of, I forget, Lawrence Steinberg is, is the author. It's about a three-year-old book, but he makes a really important case that adolescence, the term adolescence is, is one that we've generated over time, but it's starting earlier mm -hmm. and it's going later, mm -hmm. which makes this a more difficult time. If you think about it, some adolescents, because puberty is often starting earlier, kids who are looking more adult-like because they're pubescent earlier are set up for even more challenges because they might be 10 or 11 years old, and they look like they're about 14 or 15. So people have expectations of them socially and academically, and unfortunately, even sexually, that these kids are supposed to be functioning at levels that are beyond their mental capacity to do so. And it's a prolonged period of tremendous you know, challenge and ambiguity and, and difficulty for kids who are in this prolonged period. Right of what we call adolescence. Which adds to a lot of the stress and anxiety. Yeah, it does. Okay, so I want to get to your book, and I want to get to the part of the book that when you presented it, it, it really did kind of blow me away. And yeah. I think you know what part it is, right? Because 
you know, in a lot of the work that we do with schools and, and through Change School, one of the things that we try to point out is this kind of gap there seems to be between the things we believe about how kids learn mm-hmm. and the ways that we construct classrooms, right? The, mm-hmm. the kind of thinking that goes into the conditions that we create and how dissimilar they are, right? How there's a, a big tension between the conditions that we think lead to powerful learning and the conditions right. that we actually create in classrooms. Right. So that's where my brain has been for a long time. But you, in your presentation, kind of framed this in a different way that I just thought was really powerful. Mm-hmm. And it deals with a protocol called immunity to change, which I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. I'd love it if you just took us through that piece of your research and yeah. just talked a little bit about how that kind of gets set up and then what the results of some of those conversations were. Great. So the immunity to change paradigm is one to which I was exposed a long time ago because the author of it, Robert Keegan, and his colleague, Lisa Leahy, Bob Keegan was a professor of mine in graduate school. So I've been aware of his research for a long, long time. And his idea with this notion, their idea with this notion of immunity to change, it's a very powerful change paradigm that's being used not just in schools, but in healthcare systems in businesses around the world. And it's, it's, a, it's a system that looks at how it is and why it is that it's difficult to make real and lasting changes because there's something that's getting in the way of our ability to make the kind of changes we want to make. And this applies, now, on, it applies on a personal level too. Exactly right, right. very personal level. Yep. And, it, and the, the analogy with immunity to change is that in the same way that there are physiological, chemical, biological immunities that keep us alive in in the face of environmental toxins and in in the face of of diseases and and whatever else may come our way, we don't have to turn on our immune systems. They are hardwired and built into us to help us fight those kinds of uh, viruses or diseases and that keep us alive below our level of consciousness. And what Keegan and Leahy say, and I completely agree, there are very similar psychological immunities that we have also developed that live well below our levels of consciousness that we developed a long time ago because for very good reasons, uh, usually coming from our families of origin. But for all kinds of reasons, we developed ways of operating, ways of thinking, ways of feeling that were very adaptive and helpful to us then to keep us in the game of our then current lives. But as we have matured and grown over time, we often don't need those same skills or those same ways of thinking and being. And until we can uncover what they are, it turns out that they are the very things that get in the way of our desire to make real and lasting new changes. And it's typically that, you know, when we, when we think about abandoning those very things that kept us alive, then we're terrified at the idea of, of losing our own psychological immune systems. Because if we lose our immune systems psychologically, then that makes us utterly vulnerable and defenseless. That's where the fear comes from. And what I found interesting about that, too, is, you know, you've said it a couple of times, but it's below our consciousness, right? Yeah. It's, these are these are things that we really don't know that we're doing or reacting yeah. to until right. someone kind of pulls them out of us. And I mean, that's the that's kind of the process of immunity to change is to right. make people see or help people see. I love the phrase too, you know, the different commitments that we make and how yes. sometimes those commitments are across purposes. So talk yes. a little bit about how that all rolls out then with, you know, the ways that, that you started looking at the kids who were 
presenting to you with anxiety and depression and, and those yeah. things. At the same time that I was starting to write a book about, you know, as I mentioned a lot earlier in this interview, I was struck by the number of kids who were presenting with suicidal ideation. And it just felt to me like after years and years of working clinically with adolescents, this seemed like it was getting louder and bigger and more intense. And I had the sense that collectively adolescents were kind of saying, how far do we have to push this before you adults get the message that this is too hard for us? We're not ready to take on all these pressures. So my initial goal was simply to try to amplify the voices and the experiences of the many, many kids I'd seen over time who were presenting with these kinds of pressures. But at the same time that I was starting to write the book about that, I was training to become a facilitator of the Immunity to Change workshop because I was so intrigued by it. I had used it in my own clinical practice with individuals, but I also realized that this was a very powerful tool that I could use to help people make significant changes in their lives. So I wanted to be an official presenter of it. So it was that, that kind of at the same time that I was writing this book, I had this immunity to change paradigm kind of swimming around in my head. And I might have mentioned this in the in the presentation in, in uh, Johannesburg, but, but I was out on a bike ride one day and it struck me that symptoms of uh, kids' stressors, their anxieties, their depression, their eating disorders, their cutting themselves, their suicidality, were the very kinds of things that would fit into this paradigm. I just adapted those symptoms into the immunity to change paradigm. And then, quite frankly, I, I was so struck by what I, what I could see happening. I, could, I, could, I knew how people would begin to answer those, the questions themselves. Right. Then I rode my bike home. And I asked my wife to just pretend that she was a school administrator asking me about being concerned about the number of kids who were struggling in all these serious ways in her school. And I led her through the immunity to change paradigm for the first time. And she went exactly where I thought she would go. And I thought, wow. <clears throat> then I, I had recently presented at a school three or four different workshops in the previous three or four months. And so they knew me well, and I called them and I said, I have a favor to ask you. Would you allow me to come up and interview your senior administrative team for about two or three hours with this particular paradigm? I'm just curious to do a kind of pilot interview with you. And they said, sure. So I went up and I met with about eight of the school's senior administrators uh, during the summer and led them through the exact same interview that I had previously led my wife through. And every single one of them went to the same places. Their language was a little different, but they all went to the exact same places. And I realized I'm onto something. So then I started doing that everywhere I went. And as you know, and as I've talked about, I've given this interview in Amsterdam, in Nice, in Copenhagen, in Dubrovnik, in Beijing, in Manila, in South Africa, in Shanghai, in Kathmandu, in Manila. I mean, I've been everywhere around the world. And what's so profound about this is that everywhere I've gone, educators who are decent, dedicated, devoted people, who they've given their careers to this, they have such tremendous integrity. They answer these questions candidly and honestly. And in so doing, they come to their own recognition of 
why making these kinds of changes are so difficult. There's a collective immunity to change with respect to wanting to make what I think of as developmentally empathic changes in schools. Right. I'll just use one case example. The one that I refer to most frequently is I had a senior administrator of one of New England's most prestigious independent schools say, and I'm quoting him now directly, if we gave in and a developmentally appropriate schedule emerged for our students, it would be at the cost of our school's distinctiveness. We would become a vanilla school, and who would want to come to a vanilla school? So at the same time that they were able to admit earlier in the interview that they were committed to wanting to develop a healthy school culture and wanting to educate their students in healthy and safe and balanced ways. And that's why they were so concerned about kids with anxiety disorders and depression. Of course they were concerned about that. But at the same time that they had those commitments to wanting to develop a healthy school culture, once going through this interview, they also acknowledged honestly that they were also committed, maybe even more committed, to maintaining their school's reputation, to maintaining their brand, to making their budget, to keeping their jobs, and recognizing that they as adults are in a bind. The bind being that we want to do the right thing by kids, but we also are stuck in a bind that has us over-scheduling kids, overworking kids, and at times overwhelming them. And we, the adults, are imposing too much pressure on these kids out of our own fears that if we don't, we will lose our reputation as competitive schools that get kids into selective colleges around the world. That right there was that most powerful part for me because, you know, it is this unspoken commitment that we have and it's not one that we acknowledge very often. We don't put that on the table very often. We're not comfortable. If you go to any website of any independent public (laughs) or, or international school, no one says... We overschedule your kids. <laughs> we assign them with too much homework, and we expect like adults and think like adults before they are adults. If they did, right. no one would come to those schools. Right, but that is kind of the expectation that parents have, though, and that's the yeah. other piece of this. Right, is that the narrative is so deeply rooted, yes, as dysfunctional as it is, it's accepted yeah. without really any pushback. That's right. Even when I asked parents the exact same questions, when I asked them to first identify their commitments about why they were so concerned about their kids having so much anxiety and depression and eating disorders and so on, they said, we're committed to loving our children above all else. We're committed to being there for our children. We're committed to, we we love our kids, we'll do anything for them. And when I asked them to, you know, go through the interview, they ultimately come to well, if we, they also admit to overscheduling their children, to micromanaging their kids' lives, to nagging their kids about their homework, to obsessing about where their kids are going to apply to college. From like first grade on, they, they acknowledge this. They acknowledge things like we, in a sense, we emphasize our own, we flaunt our success in front of our children, making them feel like they have to compete with us. And then I say, and if you, if you can imagine not doing those things, if you didn't overschedule and micromanage your kids' lives, if you didn't obsess on their college process as, as you are these days, what fears come up for you? And they all say we'd feel like we'd be failures as parents, that what we have to do, we would feel like we have failed our kids if we don't nag them to get, because we're so worried about their futures. 
So this is the bind that parents are in. It's the right. same bind that parents and educators together are in at the same time. I know. I kind of lived that because when, when people would come up and say, so where's Tess going to college? And I said, well, she's not. They were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> they're like, what do you mean yeah. she's not going to college? And I said, yeah. well, she doesn't really know what she wants to do. And if she wants yeah. to save us 40 grand a year to figure yeah. it out, that's okay to take her that's time. Okay. But I mean, I could sense that there were some people who were like, well, what are you talking about? Right. You know, you, you can't, she can't not go to college. Right. It's just fascinating to me, again, how deeply rooted and deeply ingrained that that narrative is. And we can't really get out of our way <laughs> to think about it differently because right. we have these perceived expectations and these other stories that we tell about, yeah. you know, what our own self-worth will be if our kids don't live up to our exactly. society's expectations or, and, and again, from the school standpoint, right. I love, you know, the one, I don't know if you mentioned it just now, but the one that I know you mentioned when you were given the presentation was the administrator or one of the responses that you got from the people in schools where we would be perceived as being soft, intellectually soft, intellectually soft. And I love that. I mean, I, I loved it and hated it. Right. But that, yeah. when you said that, I was just like, that's crazy. Because for us as educators, that's the kiss of death. It is. Right? If, if as a teacher, you're perceived as being soft, then... And that is the struggle. And just, you know, just to get back to some of the work that we're trying to do here, that's a real struggle with people to suggest to them that they may not, you know, look at, uh, assign as much homework or think about homework in that way, that they might, might not want to have kids chasing grades, that they might not... Uh, one of the other podcast interviews we did was with Scott Looney, who's at mastery.org. I'm sure you, you probably have heard of Scott at Hawkins School, yeah. one of these real high flyer independent schools again. And, you know, they're getting rid of grades. They want to send kids to college in five years without a numbered transcript at all. Yeah. And so when we talk about it with some people, they kind of go, well, what it, <laughs> how would you know? Yeah. You know, how would, how would I know if my kids are doing well or how it, it's just a very interesting dynamic that, I'm not sure I fully understand how, again, how pervasive it is and how big of a barrier it is. And that's why I love that word too, immunity, right? Yeah, because it right. makes it really hard for us as organizations or even as individuals to change those stories. That Very we're hard. Ourselves. We're so programmed in them yeah. from early on. One yeah. of the stories that I, you might recall, I think I told in Johannesburg was about one of my colleagues had she and her husband had their first baby back in July 2017. And in February of 2017, they called this really reputable daycare center near their home, wanting to get a vacancy for their child for October, thinking that Rachel would take a few months of maternity leave and then slowly start going back to work. And they were surprised to learn not only that that daycare center was fully enrolled for September, for October of 2017, but they were fully enrolled for 2018 as well, October of 18, which meant that they were fully enrolled with babies that haven't been conceived yet. They still haven't been conceived today, which tells us something about the kind of anxiety that parents are experiencing or want to be parents about their children's future. They want to get them into the best daycare center so they can go to the best preschool, the best elementary school, the best high school, the best college so they can live the best life as if life were that linear. Well, as we both know, it's not. I'm always interested in how best is defined. Yes. 
and how we measure best, right? And and how we really don't examine that nearly as much yeah. as, as we should. So, But, you know, just even with that particular story, as if we think about what we want for our kids to put them in the best daycare center or the best kindergarten or the best thing, what we're actually doing as we put our kids in those situations is what? We're taking care of our own fear. That's right. That's right. And that's the basis of this entire process because those fears are what drive us to do these these right. absurdities and we think we're helping our kids we're in fact setting them up for all kinds of challenges yeah. we're taking care of ourselves in the process so you titled your book at what cost and then the subtitle was defending adolescent development in fiercely competitive schools and yeah. I, I found that defending word pretty yeah. interesting right and so i guess the the ultimate question is so what do we do <laughs> right. I mean, we're in this bind. The bind is is pretty deep and pretty strong. Yeah. What do we do now in terms of separating our own kind of self-worth from the, the whole conversation about what we do with our kids and what happens to our kids? Yeah, it's a great question. And I have to warn you, there's no easy answer. To no, it. I know. In fact, when I started, when I was almost finished with the book, I didn't have what is now chapter 10 in my book. But one of my colleagues, who's also an English teacher, said to me, so what do we do? And I said, you know, I, I I can't tell schools what to do. They have to figure this out. And I went into this whole process, which I'll explain in a minute. And he said, well, I understand that. But he said, if you're going to present yourself as an expert right. in this area and you're not going to tell us what to do, who is? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's a really good point. So I wrote my chapter 10. But the gist is this. In the book, and I think you've probably read this, but I, I, I reference another researcher by the name of Ron Heifetz. Ron Heifetz is a psychiatrist, but his primary role is as a consultant. He works out of the Harvard School, the Kennedy School of Government. And he wrote a book called Leadership Without Easy Answers. And in it, he differentiates between what he refers to as technical versus adaptive challenges. Technical challenges are those for which the answers already exist. And one of the examples I use all the time is, you know, if you need bypass surgery, you hire a really skilled cardiologist. This isn't trivial. It's highly technical, but it requires nothing of you, only that you lie there supine, unconscious, and wide open while some (laughs) technician fixes your heart and then sews you up and sends you home. In contrast to How do you change the culture of a school? There aren't any easy answers to that. The way we have to change this is we as the adults have to engage, recognize the problem that we're in, recognize the bind that we're in, recognize what's keeping us in it, our own fears. We have to develop tests of our own fears to see if, in fact, our fears are well-founded or whether or not they're just fears that are carryovers from our many, many years of doing what we've been doing. And we have to make tests and test out our fears and come to new assumptions. My sense is that what professional growth and development is for adults is about testing the waters of their own fears and finding out more often than not, the fears they have of the worst things happening won't happen. Here's an example. One school that I write about in the book made the decision finally to change their school start time from 8 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. The school had gone through a long process of a couple of years of saying no to that, of resisting it. But finally, through some significant influence, I know, from the board of trustees, they said, okay. And the board said, just try it. Just try it. 
So for one semester, the head of school said, for one semester, we're going to do this. You don't have to like it, but we're doing it. So it was a kind of from on high decision. So for one semester, this school changed it to school to 8.30 as school start time. Well, they had far fewer visits to the health center. Kids got much more sleep. Kids' grades improved. Levels of anxiety and depression decreased. And there were, and this is all written up in the American Journal of Medicine, by the way. Once they had done this for three months, when they asked the faculty about going back to eight o'clock, everyone was like, no way. We have literally changed our minds. We tried an experiment. It worked just fine. We're all doing fine. And our kids are still getting into good colleges. And don't you think now that school is even in more demand because they're doing the developmentally right thing by allowing their students to get more sleep than they had previously. This is how I think it can work. I think we can change and be even better at what we do. But our fear is if we change, then we'll, we'll be seen as intellectually soft or we'll be seen as, as losing our reputation as competitive schools. When in fact, I think we can be seen as developmentally more empathic schools that are helping kids and making us as adults feel better about the work that we're actually doing. You know, just like many problems, the first step to fixing them is to admit you have one, right? But you have to admit you have the right problem. Or yeah. the, you have to work on the correct problem. And I think in schools, what happens a lot is that we go right to the technical change. We That's go right, right to, the, to the technology. We go right to let's create test prep courses or whatever else in, in order to kind of fix whatever we think the, the problem yeah. is. We're not really willing right. to admit that we have a bigger problem that is cultural. That, That's right. That goes, it's an existential problem. It, it really is. It truly and, is. And it's not something that is easy. And yeah. uh, in organizations like schools, which have so much pressure on them, you know, to achieve or to meet those those expectations and those yeah. outcomes that people have set, whether that's the government, you know, whether it's the state level, where it's parental, whether it's even kids. Well, the colleges play a role in this. And the colleges as well, sure. It's just very hard to get to those bigger questions and to yeah. try to figure out how to change all of that. The other piece that I wanted to mention, uh, Will, in, in this role of defending adolescent development, it's also struck me, and I write about this in the book as well, but it strikes me that when we see kids in our schools who are struggling, who are anxious and depressed and hurting themselves and suicidal, what do we tend to do? We send them to counselors. We send them to psychiatrists. We send them yeah. to get all kinds of help. We basically ask kids to change, but we don't look in the mirror and say, what are we doing? that has kids feeling this anxious and so depressed and so pressured in the first place. So to me, that's not fair to ask kids to change. They've got enough on their plate already. I keep referring to this guy that I quote all the time, the guy with whom I did a workshop a long time ago. And he said, and I quote him all the time as saying, said, we are responsible for the cultures we create. We are the adults. We are creating cultures that are increasingly unhealthy for kids. And we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that their brains aren't ready to take on the kind of pressures that we acknowledge to be imposing on them. We are responsible for these cultures. We have to have the courage to change them. Well, David, it's a fascinating conversation. And if nothing else, huge kudos for identifying the problem. <laughs> and at least it's now something that hopefully is going to become more and more clear to people. 
so that we can, uh, you know, like I said, try to try to fix our way or try to evolve our way to an answer so that it's going to be best for kids. Yeah. Really appreciate the time and uh, sincere best wishes in your work moving forward. And likewise, I appreciate Change School and having met you and let's stay in touch. 